Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today is episode number nine. We're asking the question, how did Saul become Paul? And also discussing a conundrum, why you wouldn't be able to find Jesus in first century Jerusalem, even with a working time machine. And our Bible reading for the day, for day number nine, is Genesis 9, Ezra 9, Matthew 9, and Acts chapter 9. So if you've grown up in church, maybe even if you haven't grown up in church, you've probably heard of the conversion of Paul the Apostle. Initially, as the story goes, Saul was an enemy of Christians and had them arrested. He was even at the murder or martyrdom of the deacon Stephen that we read a couple of days ago together, and he was apparently the government official there that signed off on his impromptu and probably illegal execution. So far, so good. That's all in keeping with what the Bible says. But then, later on, the Damascus Road, as Acts 9 tells us, Saul meets Jesus and becomes a Christian. For the rest of his life after meeting Jesus, as many preachers have said, Saul is now known as Paul, because Jesus not only changed his heart, but changed his name too. Great story, bro. But is that what really happened according to the Bible? Actually, spoiler alert, it isn't at all. But before we discuss Saul, Paul, and biblical names, let's read Acts chapter 9 together. This is verse 1 from the Christian Standard Bible. Now Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! Here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Uh, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you are traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Now Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Hey, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the express purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates at day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he'd spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. But they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there. And they sent two men to him who urged him, Don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down and prayed, and turning towards the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Amen. What a fantastic testimony. Uh, it's You see there Saul coming to Jesus. You see how Peter is used of God to raise the dead. Saul was such a notorious enemy of the Christians 
at the time when he was saved, that when God directly tells the prophet Ananias to go pray for him, Ananias has the temerity, well, maybe the foolishness, to try and tell God that he was mistaken about sending Ananias to go and pray healing for Saul. Um, can, you, can you imagine? God tells you to do something, and you're like, now hold on, God. I need to explain a few things to you so you can really understand from my perspective why this idea is probably a dumb idea. Well, uh, God convinces him that he's right and Ananias is wrong, duh, and then Saul is healed and delivered. And then Ananias gives him his new name, right? Actually, no, Saul is still Saul. In fact, in Acts 9, 19 through 20, we see that Saul has become an evangelistic dynamo. Saul was the, with the disciples in Damascus for t some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He, Jesus, is the Son of God. But his name is still Saul. Now, wait a minute. I thought my preacher told me that when Saul was saved, he, God changed his name to Paul. Well, let's keep going. Saul later goes to Jerusalem to try and join the church there, but they're still afraid of him. So he decides to change his name to something more Jewish sounding, right? Actually, no, again, that's not how it went down. He remains Saul, and Saul is a Jewish name. It's a Hebrew name. Then we take a Saul break for a couple of chapters in the book of Acts to let Peter eat some goats and pigs and things like that. And at the end of chapter 11, the focus turns back to Saul, who has been sort of uh, passed off to his hometown of Tarsus, partially because Christians are afraid of him, but also partially because people are after him. But, praise God, good old Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes along and takes Saul that's still his name, to the church in Antioch, which is a Greek Gentile city that would be in modern-day Turkey. In Antioch, Saul becomes a valued member of the church there and is still called Saul. Finally, we get to Acts chapter 13. The Gentile church at Antioch is flourishing and filled with seasoned prophets and teachers from many different nations, including a, a, at least two African guys, Lucius of Cyrene and a guy named Simeon the Black, which is actually a pretty cool name if you ask me. The Holy Spirit sets apart two of these prophet teachers for an evangelism mission and calls them out by name, Barnabas and Saul. Yes, in Acts chapter 13, Years after Saul has been saved, God himself still uses the name Saul. And then we get the changeover. Blink and you'll miss it. But it comes in verse 9, where Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us, But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he has this interesting encounter with a sorcerer, but we're not there yet. We're not going to read that yet. You'll just have to wait, uh, what, five, four more days till Acts chapter 13. Point being, Luke tells us for the first time that Saul is also called Paul. And after that, every time it's Paul, the whole Paul and nothing but the Paul. Following that verse, the only time we hear the name Saul in the Bible is when Paul is recounting his testimony on the Damascus Road. In every other instance, he is simply called Paul. So, our big question, why did Saul become Paul? And the answer is, he didn't. 
Saul is both a Roman citizen and a Hebrew citizen, and as as such, he would have two names, a very common practice in the first century. I have a good friend with Mexican origins who is called Johnny by most people here in Salinas, California, but his real name is Juan. Something very similar is happening here with Saul slash Paul. Some dual names came about in the Bible because a person had an encounter with God and God changes their name. Abram becomes Abraham, Sarah, Sarai becomes Sarah, and Jacob the deceiver becomes Israel the overcomer. But in Saul's case, Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Greek or Gentile name, and that is what he went by once God called him to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. It makes all the sense in the world. I have no doubt what Whatsoever, that if one of Paul's old Hebrew friends had seen him, that he would have hailed him as Saul, and Paul Saul would have answered without batting an eye. Now, one last small rabbit trail about names. Let's say that you and I are out for a walk, and we encounter a certain dashing British fellow, or lady, as is the case at the moment, who is a doctor, but not the medical kind of doctor. And this doctor has an interesting blue police box that is larger on the inside than on the outside, and holy cow, it can go back in time. If our doctor friend asks me where I'd like to go... Well, I'd immediately ask to go back to first century Jerusalem. Why? Of course, I want to see Jesus. Well, here's the sort of interesting thing. Let's say I could speak Aramaic. I can't hardly a lick of it. I know a smattering of words. I could get by a tiny bit in Greek, a little less so in Hebrew, almost not at all in Aramaic. But let's say I could. That was the dominant Jewish language spoken by the people of Israel during the disciples' time. So, if I could speak Aramaic, I would have a very hard time finding Jesus, no matter how many people I ask. They would probably look at me like I was crazy and tell me they'd never heard of a Jesus. Well, what if I asked for Saul, or Paul, or Luke, or Matthew, or Peter? I get the same response. Why? Because those people are myths that only appear in the Bible? No, Mr. YouTube Atheist, because Jesus wasn't called Jesus when he was here, and neither was Saul slash Paul called Saul Paul, or Luke called Luke, or Matthew Matthew, or Peter called Peter. Confused yet? Well, don't be. It's a very simple explanation. Those names are English. And English was not a language in the first century A.D. Saul's name would be pronounced more like Shaul, like, yeah, with an S-H. His Greek name would have been Paulos or Paulos. How about Peter? Well, maybe you mean Petros or Shimon ben Yona in Hebrew or even Kepha in Aramaic. That would be the apparent Aramaic transliteration of the word we might know as Cephas, which means stone. Luke would be Lucas, and Matthew would be Levi or Matthaeon. What about Jesus? Well, most likely he would have been Yahashua ben Yosef, which was later shortened to Yeshua ben Yosef. Both names mean son of Joseph, and they're both shortened forms of our word Joshua. Joshua, son of Joseph. And the Hebrew name means simply this— Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God, you might have heard of is Jehovah. Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. It means 
You don't save yourself by being good. You don't save yourself by finding your way to God. The gospel is in the name Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. God saves you. Jesus' name in Greek is apparently a transliteration of the Hebrew and is Iesus, which is pronounced e like sort of an E-A-Sus sound, even though it's spelled with an I or our equivalent of an I. Why is it spelled with an I? Well, because they didn't have the letter J way back when, during the first century. That's a newer letter. Still hundreds of years old, but newer than the New Testament. Our English word, Jesus, comes from Jesus, the Greek word, via a complicated bit of etymology that would be somewhat boring to non-word geeks. So, here's a bit of a stunner if you haven't realized it quite yet. The name Jesus and the name Joshua are the same names in terms of meaning and origin. Joshua is simply an anglicized version of Yeshua, and Jesus is an anglicized version of the Greek Jesus. And for the record... Anglicized simply means English, make to make something English in form or character. Now, on an upcoming podcast, we'll talk a lot more about the name Jesus, Jesus at some point. But for now, just simply know that Jesus, Peter, Paul, Luke, Mark, etc., they are anglicized versions of Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic names. And now, let's dig into some more meat with Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, You must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by flood waters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, a rainbow, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Ham and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years. Then he died. I suppose some of you might want me to comment on that episode with Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Guess what? I'm not. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. I have no idea what to say about all that. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. When I read this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and sat down devastated. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our fathers until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests, to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He's extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, saying, The land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding peoples have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity 
so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again and intermarry with peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. So, Ezra 9, I almost want to uh, comment on it the same way I did the ending of Genesis 9 just then. But here's the thing. I believe tomorrow we are going to talk about marriage in light of Ezra 9 and Ezra 10. Very complicated passages. Some people, some people in the South, really some people all around, still believe that the Bible bans mixed-raced marriages. And the fact of the matter is, it does not. And we're going to talk about this tomorrow, and I think we're going to do it in a biblical way. Uh, I have some very passionate views on this. In fact, I read, uh, I wrote a book on it, The Bible and Racism. Um, this is not a race issue that's happening here in Ezra 9. This is a religion issue. The problem is not intermarrying with different races. It is intermarrying with different religions. But we will talk about that tomorrow because there is absolute, but, but let me say this just to dispel all doubt, there is absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever in any way, shape, or form, biblically, with mixed-race marriage. It is a good thing. It is a blessed thing. If you think there's something wrong with it, I would remind you, Jesus wasn't white, for one, neither was uh, almost everybody in the Bible. Uh, and I, I would remind you that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about mixed-race marriages. In fact, we're going to talk about several of them tomorrow like with Moses and other people that you know and love. But one more chapter for us to read today. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming! Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the disciples saw this, they asked his disciples, I'm sorry, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? 
Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst. The wine spills out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter just died, but please come lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for twelve years approached him from behind and touched the end of his robe, for she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players in a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. Then the news of this spread throughout the whole area. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been done and seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Amen. That was the word of the Lord. That was also episode nine of the Bible Reading Podcast. If you've made it this far, great job. Here's the thing. We're all about daily Bible reading. It's not so much about reading the whole Bible in a year. If you can do that, that's great. But you don't have to go back and make up for lost time if you don't have the time for that. More important to get there and read the Word of God daily. No guilt on what you've missed. Let's catch up today. There's mercy, new mercies from God for today. So let's catch up from day and go forward, hearing the Word of God, living the Word of God, reading the Word of God, breathing the Word of God. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Godspeed to you.